Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, how grateful we are for such a beautiful environment that we have to meet and to worship. An outdoor amphitheater with a water feature and a baptismal right next to us. We can hear the sounds and get a little bit of what it might have been like listening to John the Baptist preach so boldly. Lord, I thank you for how faithful you have been to us as a church body, and we thank you now in our hearts for those individual things and answers to prayer that you have provided throughout this week. We come with hungry hearts, Lord. We need spiritual truth. We long to take a bath in the truth, to be washed by your word, renewed by your word. So, Lord, as we consider some of these great principles in this third chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, I pray that we would learn from an example of a man who was uncompromising, who loved you and clearly wanted to please you, and didn't care what anybody else really thought about him. So help us, Lord, to understand and to apply in Jesus' name. Amen. When you think of a guy like John the Baptist, there's probably a lot of words that would come to your mind. Maybe eccentric would be one of those words, because he was considered rather eccentric where he lived, where he preached, what he ate, what he looked like. Um, unconventional might be another word that would come to your mind. Odd would come to some of your minds. Um, hippie comes to my mind. He's out there in the desert eating bugs. But I'll tell you the best word to describe John the Baptist. He was great. He was a great man. In fact, Jesus said of John the Baptist, there's been no one born of a woman who is greater than John the Baptist. He's the greatest one, the greatest man who had ever lived, faithful to the Lord to the end. John did not live a long life. In fact, his ministry was rather short-lived. I know he wanted to have a longer influence and a longer ministry. And yet, even though his life was, we would say, cut short, he was still very great. I read a business review article that said, great men have but a few minutes to be great. And what makes a person great is their ability to find out what is most important and to focus in on that which is most important. It's a good description of John the Baptist. He knew what was most important. So he pointed to that one, Jesus. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he lived his life for him. Now, John the Baptist is untypical. He is not your typical character. And one of the reasons I'm attracted to John is because he was so out of the ordinary and so untypical. He was contramundum, against the flow or against the world. He didn't follow everybody else's drumbeat, but clearly followed the Lord's. Now, it says in verse 1 of John chapter 3, In Matthew, that's what I meant to say. Wednesday night. 
Wednesday night. Matthew, Wednesday night. John, Sunday morning. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus. We know that his mother Mary and John the Baptist's father's wife Elizabeth, they were cousins, first cousins. That made John the Baptist and Jesus second cousins. I imagine because John was raised down south in the hill country of Judea, that Jesus, as he was come from Nazareth with his family down toward Jerusalem, down to the temple to worship, they probably met every time they were down in that area. And so John the Baptist and Jesus, at least for a few times during the year, would connect and be able to watch each other grow up. John the Baptist was also a PK. Now we know a PK as a pastor's kid, but in those days a PK was a priest's kid. And the priests in the temple, there were 24 courses of them, and Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, was one of those priests, which would mean that John the Baptist would be in line in that family to eventually one day join the priesthood and serve in the temple. But this was a PK gone rogue. He went out to the desert. He didn't follow the typical protocol the priests would follow. Uh, Priests were trained at a very early age. By age 20, they would often be engaged in some priestly duties. And by age 30, they were fully engaged in the priesthood, in their functions in Jerusalem in the temple. But John the Baptist was different. Rather than going to Jerusalem, he has Jerusalem come to him. He goes 20, 30 miles out of the way in the wilderness of Judea, and he was baptizing people there. Now, here's how he happened to be born. His father and his mother were quite old, and they were childless. They trusted in the Lord. They waited upon God. But one day, while Zacharias, that's his dad, was in the temple... In the evening sacrifice, the angel Gabriel appeared to him and said, Zacharias, you and your wife Elizabeth, though she is barren, you've been unable to conceive, she's going to have a child. And he's going to be great. In fact, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. And you're to call him John. What's interesting is this priest, Zacharias, didn't seem to believe Gabriel, though, honestly, if I had an angel appear to me and tell me anything, I think I'd believe it hands down. But uh, Zacharias goes, how will I know this is true? And because he asked the question in doubting, Gabriel didn't take too much to that kind of doubt, so he struck him dumb, unable to speak. So Zacharias, stunned, walked out of the temple that evening after his duties, and he couldn't talk, and he would just have to use sign language now for months. A few months after Mary found out that she was pregnant, she went to visit her cousin, Elizabeth, down south. And the Bible says, as Mary 
went into the house and called out her cousin's name, Elizabeth, that the baby inside jumped. She was about five to six months pregnant at that time. Elizabeth was with John the Baptist. And so she says to Mary, as soon as your voice hit my ears, the babe leaped for joy in the womb. How is it that the mother of my Lord has come to visit me? Well, by the time John the Baptist was born, and they asked Elizabeth, what shall we call the baby? Because we can't ask your husband, he can't talk. She said, you're to call his name John. And everybody said, John, you don't have anybody in your family named John. And so they did ask Zacharias, who said, motion, get me a writing tablet. And he wrote out in script, call him John. At that point, his mouth was opened. He was able to speak. And in speak, speaking, he blessed the Lord and he blessed his son. And this is what he said about him. This is out of Luke now, chapter 1. Zechariah said to young John the Baptist, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. So John the Baptist became the forerunner, or another term, the ambassador for Jesus Christ, fulfilling the prediction in the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, where God says, Behold, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Though John the Baptist appears on the pages of the New Testament, did you know that he is considered an Old Testament prophet? Really, he is considered the last Old Testament prophet. For this is what Jesus said. He said, All, all the law... And the prophets spoke until John. All the prophets spoke until John. That is John the Baptist. That makes John then the last Old Testament prophet fulfilling the last Old Testament book pointing toward the coming Messiah. So therefore he is preparing the way of the Lord. As we're going to find out is a prophecy out of the book of Isaiah. Now we're told in verse 1 that he came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. The wilderness of Judea is down by the Dead Sea. Jerusalem is about 25, 24, 2600 feet above sea level, depending on where you are in town. The Dead Sea, the lowest place in the world, it's a limestone rocky desert, And it's at 1,290 feet below sea level. It's very hot. It's very barren. It's very ugly. What's interesting is that rather than John the Baptist going up to Jerusalem where the crowds are, he goes way out of the way in this barren desert on the north shores of the Dead Sea where the Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea. And he's out in the middle of nowhere saying to whoever will be there, repent. He doesn't go to Jerusalem. He has all the people in Jerusalem, in Judea, come to him. Now, if you were to hook John the Baptist up with a public relations expert or a consultant, he would say, John, your ministry is doomed for failure, man. Nobody is going to come and listen to you out here. You've got camels out here. You've got lizards going on out here. You've got horny toads. 
your, your, your ministry won't grow. Can you imagine John the Baptist saying, had an altar call today, three horny toads came forward. It was awesome. But it actually fits. It seems to be a style of God that I notice in the Bible that rather than following typical protocol or what would seem to be logical, that which is theological isn't always logical. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. Jesus wasn't born in Rome. Jesus wasn't born in Jerusalem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the outskirts of Jerusalem, lived in Nazareth, a scorned town. People said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And it actually fits with what I've called my life verse out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You see your calling, brethren. There's not many mighty, not many noble, not many wise who are called. For God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise and the base things and the detestable things. It seems to be God's way, God's principle. So he's way in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness, but it says Jerusalem came to him. It says, he said, repent. Verse 2, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. I remember reading years ago some material on how to grow a church. And they felt it was important that you locate your ministry facility in a conveniently located place. And that you do a demographic study of the community to find out what the age bracket is and what the interests of people who live in that community are. And that you tailor your ministry to fit the community being conveniently located with the demographic studies. Again, John the Baptist didn't seem to get the memo. And yet, as God's representative, he saw something tremendous. Lots of interesting visitors, scribes, Pharisees, priests, Sadducees, even Jesus Christ. Now, his message is clear. I read it to you. I'll share it again. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Did you know... John the Baptist's first message, repent, is exactly the same first message as that of Jesus. In the next chapter, Jesus will speak. And the first words recorded by Matthew out of the lips of Jesus are, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the word repent, you should know by now, means a change, a thorough change, a complete change, a constitutional change a change of heart or a change of mind, but it also includes a change of behavior. Often in the Bible, when you see the idea or the word repent, it's accompanied with another word, believe. Repent and believe the gospel is one scripture. Repent and believe. Those are two sides of the same coin. To repent means I turn away from sin. To believe means I turn to God. It's a complete turning. I just don't deny my flesh and turn from sinful, evil things. But I make the turn complete in turning from those things and then turning to the Lord. So that's his message. That's his first message. 
To him, that's the most important message. To Jesus, that's the first message. Repent. So if that's the case, if that's the first message, and that was the most important message that both John and Jesus preached, then I wonder why the message of repentance is so lacking in many churches, in many ministries, in many TV preachers. It seems to be all smiles and no calls for repentance. Why is that? Well, a couple reasons. Reason number one, not everyone is in touch with his or her personal sin. Nobody seems to want to admit that they're sinners. It's quite an honest but a telling admission to say, I admit I'm a sinner, I need help. You see, most people, when they hear the word sinners, they think of people who are really, really bad people, evil criminals convicted of things that should put them in prison for life. Those are sinners. Me, I'm much better than that. And so comparatively speaking, we think those are really bad people who need repentance, but I'm a really good person. I must not need repentance. And I sure hope God grades on a curve. So the ignorance of personal sin is one. Number two, I think that message is shied away from because it's an uncomfortable message. And many church leaders think if I preach a message of repentance, calling people to turn from their sin and turn to Christ, they may not want to come back next week. It's an unpalatable message. It's not an attractive message to some. But John and Jesus... The first message to John, the most important message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Oh, and by the way, Jesus did say, and we'll read it in a few chapters, blessed are those who mourn or, oh, how happy are those who are sad over their sin and they're mourning over it. Right before that, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. That means they recognize their poverty, they know their need, and they admit their need in the second beatitude by mourning over it. Oh, how happy are those who are sad over their sin. They will be comforted. It's only when you confess and you turn from sin and turn to Jesus that you find that refreshment and that blessedness that he spoke about. Well, it continues. Quoting Isaiah chapter 40, in verse 3, For this is he, that is John, who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. You should probably know that In all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them quote Isaiah the prophet and John the Baptist as fulfilling what Isaiah the prophet wrote in the 40th chapter of his prophecy. In John's Gospel, it says the representatives from Jerusalem came and they asked John the baptizer some questions. They said, are you the Christ? And he said, nope, I'm not. And they said, well, are you Elijah? 
because the Bible predicted Elijah to come. He goes, nope, I'm not Elijah either. And they said, are you that prophet? Quoting from the prediction in Deuteronomy that God would send another prophet like Moses. And he says, no, three strikes, you're out. I'm not any of those guys. Say, let me tell you who I am. I'm a voice. A voice of one crying in the desert, get right with God or make the way of the Lord straight. I like that. He said, I'm a voice. I like it especially because it's in John's gospel. And John begins by saying, in the beginning was the word. That's Jesus. He's the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Jesus, he's the word. Me, says John, I'm not the word. I'm just a voice for the word to be carried on. Jesus doesn't need, or God doesn't need any more saviors. He's got one. That's his son. He just needs voices. Those who will proclaim the word of the Lord and point to the word of God, that is Jesus. He doesn't need saviors. He doesn't need messiahs. He's got one, but he does need voices. And I hope that our voice, your voice and mine, will be joined to it. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Now it says, verse 4, John himself was clothed, get this, in camel's hair, with a leather belt, belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. You know, I wonder if John the Baptist came to the average town in America, to the average church in America, if most Christians wouldn't run away. This guy was wild looking. He wore camel's hair. Now, camels were not kosher. You couldn't eat them. Not that I'd ever want to. But you could wear their skin. You could wear their fur. It was considered a shelter from the cold. Uh, some are, uh, authors even say it kept you from the heat, and it certainly kept the rain off of you. So it was very practical. Itchy. Not a fashion statement. Not, hey, does my camel stuff look good with my shoes? None of that stuff. Just just practical. And he had a leather belt around him. Now, when I read the description of John the Baptist, I think of Elijah the Tishbite. And perhaps one of the reasons people ask him if he was Elijah is because one of the descriptions of Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1 they said, hey, there's some prophet here to see you. And they said, well, what does he look like? They said, he's a hairy man and he's got a leather belt. And they said, oh, that's Elijah the Tishbite. Bring him on in. And so John the Baptist dressed like Elijah. He was Elijah-like in the way he approached the people. That was his clothing. His diet is really weird. It says that he ate or his food was locusts and wild honey. Locusts were the one of the few bugs that were considered kosher by Jewish law. You could eat them. Again, though you could, I don't know why you would want to. But I did a little digging, and the way locusts would be prepared is often they were ground up. The bugs were ground up into sort of a paste. Then flour was added to that paste, and they were baked into little cakes, like crab cakes, only locust cakes. It was one of the favorite ways that people ate them, little Little bug cakes. 
At other times they were boiled or stewed or roasted with butter, sautéed with butter. Now doesn't that sound delicious? Sautéed locusts and butter? Wow. The Assyrians found a way to preserve them, sort of like locust chips. And they could carry them on their journeys and use them in their battles. But uh, And they ate them. So I don't know. It would bug me, but they liked it. So. <laughs> then it says this. Then Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem. All Judea. And all the region around Jordan went out to him. He didn't go to them. He was just out in the desert. The place where the children of Israel crossed into the promised land. Same spot. And he was baptizing people. It says, They were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. And when he saw many of the Pharisees and the scribes coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers! Who has warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Now, John baptized people in water. Let me give you a little background. Baptism did not begin as a Christian ritual. Its origin is not in the New Testament. It comes as a Jewish ritual. First of all, if you were a proselyte, a non-Jew, you were a Gentile, a guy like me, and you wanted to enter into the community of Jewish people, you had to go through a certain series of things in order to convert. Number one, you had to be taught Judaism by a scribe. Number two, if you were a male, you had to be circumcised no matter what age you were. And number three, you had to go through a ritual cleansing, a baptism by immersion in water. Once you did all of those things, you would eventually be allowed into the community of Judaism. That's number one. That's Jewish baptism if you were a proselyte. Number two, if you were Jewish, there was also a baptismal formula for you. If you wanted to worship in the temple, you would find a ritual bath, a baptismal, not unlike what we have here in the courtyard, hewn out of stone, water was placed in it. The water had to be moving, even if it was moving slowly, so it had to have an inlet and an outlet, and the Jews always called moving water living water, because it is moving. You'd have to immerse yourself in the living water and then come out. So if you wanted to go to the temple, right at the bottom of the steps of the temple, you that are going with us in May, you'll see them. You would uh, dunk under the water in the mikvah, come up, dry yourself up, get up on the steps, walk into the temple. Or... If you defiled yourself by touching a dead person or another object that causes defilement, you also would have to go into a mikvah, be immersed, be ritually cleansed, and then you were allowed to worship. Or if there was a sore on your body or a bloody bloody flow, a a bloody flux, it was called, uh, then you, when you were healed, had to be immersed in the mikvah and you were allowed to worship with the rest of the community. So there were two ways it was used in Judaism. If you were a Gentile wanting to proselytize or convert into Judaism, number one. Number two, if you were Jewish and you were defiled and you wanted to worship in the temple, you would be baptized. What makes this odd is John the Baptist is immersing not Gentiles to become Jews. 
He's not saying immerse yourself like you would be to be ritually cleansed. He himself was baptizing Jews who needed to repent of their sins. He was baptizing those. The baptism of John was a baptism for the remission of sin. It was a lifestyle change that he was calling on. And you will read that he says, it doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your relatives. It doesn't matter who you descended from. Your heart needs to be right with God. And when your heart is right with God, by repentance and faith, then comes the ritual of baptism to demonstrate that. That's what John's baptism was all about here in the Gospel of Matthew. But, verse 7, when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism. Now stop right there. you got to know who these guys are because they're going to come up throughout the Gospels and in the book of Acts. It seems that these guys were a delegation that the Sanhedrin, the ruling elder council of the Jews in Jerusalem, had sent down to the place where John was to check him out, to listen to him, find out what's up with this guy. I'm hearing a lot of rumors, the high priest must have said. So a delegation came. And there's two parties, two religious parties that are mentioned. First of all, the Pharisees. Let me tell you a little bit about the Pharisees. A lot you already know. The Pharisees were a small group. There were only 6,000 Pharisees at the time of Christ in Judaism, we believe. The word Pharisee comes from the Hebrew word parashim, which means separated ones. They believed that they were separated, unlike the rest of the Jews, that they were the favored ones, the holy ones, because they attended to every little fine point of the law. They were very structured. They were very legalistic. And in the Gospels, they have a confrontation with Jesus. The relationship between Christ and the Pharisees is extremely adversarial in the Gospels. For example, Jesus will see the Pharisees and he will say, You guys are a bunch of whitewashed sepulchers. You look good on the outside. You're full of death and destruction on the inside. Now, that doesn't win a lot of friends, that kind of talk. On another occasion, he said, you're a bunch of hypocrites. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Matthew 23, denunciation after denunciation. That's the first group. They were principally the enemies of Christ in the Gospels. The Sadducees are also mentioned, and they're going to be the principal enemies of the early church in the book of Acts, and here's why. The Sadducees, unlike the Pharisees, were more liberal in their thinking. They denied anything supernatural. While the Pharisees believed in all things supernatural, creation, angels, demons, spirits, resurrection from the dead, the Sadducees denied angels, spirits, and the resurrection from the dead. So what did the disciples in the book of Acts preach? Jesus is risen from the dead. So they made enemies out of the Sadducees. So it's sad, you see, the way they were treated by, by these groups. Okay, the Pharisees, there were only 6,000 Pharisees. There were even fewer of the Sadducees. But, though they were fewer, they were in charge. The high priest was a Sadducee. 
They had the money. They had the wealth of the nation. Though they were very liberal and they tried to integrate with Romans and make friends with everybody, they controlled what was going on in the temple. The Pharisees and the Sadducees hated each other. They did not get along. They were opposed to each other. They were never buddies except in one case and one case only. They both shared a mutual hatred of Jesus and they wanted to get rid of him. And that's the time they came together and you see it toward the end when Jesus is crucified. So, this group comes to John the Baptist out in the wilderness. John the Baptist is not friendly toward this group that comes out. He calls them brood of vipers. Brood means offspring. You sons of slimy snakes would be a better translation. Brood of vipers. Now, a viper was considered very shrewd, but very dangerous. Oh, you guys look so slick and so religious, but you are so dangerous. You are sons or a brood or offspring of vipers. And then he says, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. What does he mean by that? Well, he might be meaning stones as being outsiders, Gentiles. Now, these strict Jewish Legalists and rationalists, Pharisees and Sadducees, didn't care too much for Gentiles, never included them in worship. They were only allowed in one particular sanctioned part of the temple and no closer. But when John the Baptist says, God is able to raise out of these stones children to Abraham, he could have in his mind what the prophets foretold that the Gentiles would hear and the Gentiles would believe. And though you are descendants of Abraham and you wouldn't regard these stones and you wouldn't regard Gentiles any more than these rocks, God is able to raise up from these outsiders, these stones, children to Abraham. And even now, he says in verse 10, even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandal I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. One thing we always notice about John the Baptist, he points to his cousin, Jesus, all the time. He always points to him. He's the one. You're asking about who I am. I'm just a voice. He's the word. I'm just the messenger. He's the message. In John's gospel, he says, behold, look, check it out. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John the Baptist, get this, get this. Though a cousin of Jesus thought that Jesus was the answer to man's need to have their sins forgiven and was the savior of the world and believed his cousin was indeed God in human flesh. Now, to me, 
That adds to his testimony and the weight and authenticity of his testimony. How many of you would say of your cousin, my cousin is God. My cousin takes away the sin of the world. No, you know your cousin. You've hung out with your cousins. You fought with your cousins. John the Baptist believed that his cousin, his second cousin, Jesus, was the one. In fact, the way he describes himself, puts himself so low, he is so self-abasing, he says, I'm not even worthy to take off his sandal. Now, in a Jewish household, the job of the most menial slave was to take the sandals off the feet of the one who owned the home. If you came home from work, your servant would take off your sandals, wash your feet, and hold onto your sandals until you asked for them again. He would walk barefoot around the house, but if he said to his slave, Skip, I want those sandals, I'd run over and give it to him. John says, I'm not even worthy to be my cousin's most menial slave. That's who I am in comparison to who he is. Maybe that's why Jesus called him the greatest one who ever lived. He understood who he was in light of who Jesus is. He said, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. I indeed baptize you with water, said John, unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandal I am not worthy to carry. Notice this. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, there's something I want to explain to you and then put it all together. He keeps talking about fire here. And he says the winnowing fan, verse 12, his winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's a picture of judgment. So here's John out in the wilderness preaching to the people, and he preaches three kinds of baptism. Not one, not two, but three. The first kind of baptism. A baptism in water, a baptism unto repentance. Come in the water. You know what this is about. You're Jewish. But this is to signify that your life is changed, that you are repenting of your sins. It's for the remission and the taking away of sin. That's number one baptism. The second type of baptism that John mentions is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus will give. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, first of all. Now, anyone who comes to Christ is immediately, instantly baptized or immersed by the Holy Spirit into the company of other believers or the church. We are baptized. We are immersed. We are part of one another. He baptizes us immediately, instantly, once and for all, into the body, the company of saints, the body of Christ. And subsequent to that, there is a empowering of the Holy Spirit, commissioned by Jesus, to give us the power to be witnesses unto him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So there's the baptism in water, there's the baptism with the Holy Spirit by Jesus for believers, Number three, there's the baptism by fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with 
fire. Now that's the baptism that unbelievers will eventually get when they will be totally immersed in the fiery judgment of God. And the analogy that John the Baptist uses is one they would all understand. A farmer who would be winnowing his grain. And this is how it was done. John describes a winnowing fan. A winnowing fan is about three to four feet long. It was about three, maybe four prongs, like a little bit of a rake. And the farmer would scoop, typically in the evening time, because the Mediterranean wind blows from the west to the east inland. And so it's a perfect kind of velocity to do winnowing. So the farmer would take the whole grain, chaff and the wheat, toss it up with the winnowing fork into the air. The breezes would take the inedible parts, the chaff, the light flaky stuff on the outside, and blow it away. It would be gathered and be burned. Only the real kernel of the wheat would fall to the ground because it's weightier, it's heavier. The wind won't affect it as much. So we'd toss it up. Wheat would come down. Chaff would blow away. They would go over, collect it in a pile and burn it with fire. So this is the future judgment, the fiery judgment that all unbelievers will eventually be immersed in. So three baptisms John mentions. Then it says this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you. Are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. When he saw Jesus coming, his cousin coming, the one he believed to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one he knew was the answer come from God, the one predicted just like he was predicted, he knew all the stories. When he saw Jesus coming, he was puzzled. Like, wait a minute, what are you doing here? This is for guilty people. This is for sinful people. This is for people who have enough integrity to stop what they're doing, listen to the message, and repent of their sins. This isn't for you. You're the sinless one. Jesus says, let it happen, man. Let it, let it go. Permit it to be so for now, to fulfill all righteousness. What did he mean? Jesus had come to identify with sinners, to identify with you and I. The writer of Hebrews says we don't have a high priest, a representative, who was unable to be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but he was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Man, here's somebody who can relate to you because he felt what you feel. He knows what it is to be a human, what it is to face trials and temptations and heartache, to have a heart breaking with those kind of issues. He knows that. He feels it. He was in all points tempted like we are. So Jesus came, first of all, to say and to make this statement, the only way these unrighteous people are going to be made righteous is by me coming into this world and identifying with them, and I want to identify with them, though I am sinless, and you baptized sinners, I am coming to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, that baptism, I believe was a prefigurement of his own death, burial, and resurrection. Just like today, Romans chapter 6 says, when we get baptized, we are speaking of that same death, burial, and resurrection, and we're identifying backwards with Jesus. 
Paul said, you go into the water. That's like a dead man being buried in the ground. You come up out of the water. That's like a resurrection has happened. Walk in newness of life, Paul said. So here, this prefigure, Jesus being identified with us and prefiguring his own death and his resurrection. When he had been baptized, we're almost done, two more verses. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. When Jesus was baptized, the entire Godhead showed up. God the Father spoke, God the Son Jesus was being baptized, and God the Son was represented by a dove. All three were manifest. And God the Father spoke and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now remember that saying because God's going to say it again in the 17th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus is transfigured on a high mountain with Moses and Elijah. And a few of the disciples are watching this and Peter will butt in and say something and God will say, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. So all three show up at the baptism of Jesus, the Godhead. The Trinity is spoken of. Now some people um, don't believe in the Trinity. Christian believers all believe in the Trinity, but some folks don't believe in the Trinity. And their reasoning is they say, well, the Trinity, the word Trinity isn't really in the Bible. Okay, well, the word Bible isn't in the Bible. The word millennium isn't in the Bible, but the term thousand years is, and the thousand years is a millennium. It's just another word for it. It's a synonym for it. The word rapture isn't in the Bible. The doctrine of the rapture is in the Bible. The word trinity may not be in the Bible, but the doctrine of the trinity is all over the Bible. That's why I say Christian, all Christian believers believe in the trinity. It's all over the word of God. You can't escape it. From Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. Elohim is a plural verb with a singular meaning. A few verses later, Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. So in the image of God, he made man. Plural, singular in meaning. Or Isaiah chapter 6, when the Lord said, Whom shall we send and who will go for us? Well, that's God speaking. Who is he talking to? He's not talking to angels. He's talking to himself, the members of the Trinity, separate. Three separate persons. One eternal God, co-equal, co-eternal. So all three show up at this inaugurating event at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. And God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In your life, in your salvation, all three members of the Trinity took part. God the Father, 
sent his son into this world to die on the cross. Jesus, God's son, sent the Holy Spirit who would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Once we come to Christ, led by the Spirit, then the Spirit comes to live inside of us. And the Son, Jesus said, would live inside of us. And he said, my Father will also live inside. So all three members of the Trinity, as they were present here, were also present with your salvation. Now that's chapter 3. It's a very short chapter. And when we end chapter 3, the heavens are opened. As we make it to chapter 4, hell is opened. Satan comes to tempt Jesus to thwart the very reason for which he came. So remember that for next time. Even as heaven is opened, there is a response in the kingdom of darkness and hell will be opened and Satan will come on the scene and you'll see the interaction between the holy, sinless Son of God and this malevolent being, the devil. As I pray, I'm going to ask the communion board to get ready and get the elements We're going to take communion. The best way we do it outside are with these little peel-top portable communion gizmos. So everything you need is in that little packet. And you just hold on to it while we worship. And then we're going to have you peel the very top one off first and take the bread out. And we'll pray for the bread, which represents the broken body of Christ. We'll peel then the bottom layer and get down to the juice and we'll drink the fruit of the vine as being remembrance of the blood that Jesus shed for us, that covenant of his blood, and we'll worship the Lord in so doing. Now, before you actually get the elements, a word of caution. If tonight you are not a believer, and I don't know that all of you are, I assume you are, you've come to church But not everyone who comes to church is a Christian. Not everyone who goes to McDonald's is a hamburger. So I'm glad you've come to church, but I'm not sure you've come to Christ. So here's the deal. If you are not a believer in Christ, if you haven't personalized it, if there has not been repentance unto the remission of sins, where you have turned from and turned to God, then let those elements pass you on tonight. Don't take them. Don't partake with us. And here's why. The Bible says if you take them, you are actually preaching a message of damnation to your own soul. You're proclaiming that you don't know Him. You're sort of rubbing it in God's face. So this is for believers to take, not unbelievers. That's option number one. I have a better option, number two. Option number two, if you're not a believer tonight, if you haven't personally accepted Christ, that you do so right now. That you give Jesus the the key to the door of your heart, that you open it up, that you let him come inside and occupy the throne. And then you take communion because you'll be one of his children, sons or daughters. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for... Time of worship, we thank you for the lessons that we've learned in this short chapter of Matthew. We thank you for the life of a man named John the Baptist, the greatest one, the greatest man, Jesus said, born of woman. Great because 
He wanted to please you. He didn't really care what people thought of him or his message. He lived a singular life. His life was filled with conviction. And he lived that conviction out in his daily life. And he was great because he always pointed not to himself. He didn't say, I'm some great one. I'm the son of Zacharias, the priest. I'm the one filled with the Holy Spirit from my mother's womb. He just said, I'm a road worker. I'm the guy who makes straight the ways of the Lord and clears the path and points to Jesus. What a great one that is. I pray that we, like John, would point men and women to Jesus. Lord, you pointed us to Jesus tonight. And Father, I pray that as you have, that those who don't know you personally yet, but their heart, even at this very moment, is aching to know you. They sense you have brought them here for this purpose. I pray, Lord, that their hearts will be open to you and they will right now accept, receive the Savior into their lives. As you're seated in this courtyard on this beautiful evening tonight, this perfect weather in September, for some of you, new life is going to start right here, right now. And if you have not received Christ, if you're not walking in obedience with Christ, I want you to pray this right where you're seated, right where you are. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you died on the cross for me. And Shed your blood to pay for my sin. I believe that you rose from the dead for me and you conquered death. And I place my trust in you. I lay my life upon your work on the cross. I turn from my sin. And in faith I turn to you as my Savior and as my Lord. If you prayed that prayer, you're seconds old in the Lord. You have every much as right to take the communion elements as any of us who've been walking with the Lord for years. You're a child of God. You're cleansed. You're forgiven. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.